Hi, this is Albert Chow, and today on Mission Daily, we welcome Chris Himes, CEO of Indeed. Keep listening to learn how Chris went from inspiring rock star to the CEO of the world's largest job search engine. Chris, welcome to Mission Daily. Thanks. It's great to be here. We always do this with all of our guests. We always ask the same question to start, but in case someone doesn't know what Indeed is, I can't imagine they don't, but what is Indeed? So Indeed has a very simple mission. We help people get jobs. We are the number one job site in the world, more than 250 million job seekers every month in 60 countries around the world come to Indeed to look for jobs. We have several million employers who use Indeed to help uh, hire and find uh, talent. And that's really what we do. We exist to help people find jobs. Now, so this is exactly what I wanted to ask about um, when it comes to Indeed. You know, the first time I encountered Indeed, of course, uh, looking for work, but the reason why I started using the product was because it was the only job search engine that seemed to search other job search engines. Yeah. So when Indeed started, we actually just last week celebrated 15 years since the launch of Indeed. It was November of 2004. So we've spent a lot of time kind of looking back at the past. If you go back to 2004, at that time, if you were like you looking for jobs online, the state of the art at that time were what we call job boards. So essentially classified ads online, which is a site where somebody pays to post those jobs and you could go and look at the uh, jobs that are on that site, but you would only see the ones that somebody paid to post, just like seeing listings in a newspaper. And so the founders of Indeed had a really simple idea, which is what if we took all the jobs from all the different sites and put them in one place and made it really easy for people to find anything that they were looking for. Um, And that's really still what we do 15 years later. We've obviously grown and we've expanded and we've made it easier in a whole number of ways for job seekers to go beyond just searching and clicking on jobs where they can actually have a resume. They can apply to jobs directly. Uh, On the site, we have employers who are posting jobs directly to the site and who are scheduling interviews and assessing candidates and making offers. So we're really involved in every aspect of the hiring process. But that was the big insight 15 years ago was instead of having a place that just has a handful of jobs, put them all in one place and make it simple and fast to find exactly what you're looking for. Now, here's the magic question, I guess, is it it seems like the answer would be no, but I just want to make sure were other job boards against this because did they did they see did they feel like you were infringing on their traffic or their searches because ultimately you were definitely sending people to their board but i didn't know if that they started recognizing this indeed was becoming like the the first step not the instead of like a, a monster.com or something like that yeah so job boards have been important partners for indeed from the start and when we started you know, we hadn't envisioned doing anything more than just the the search piece. So we really became an important source of traffic for a number of job boards as Indeed became uh, more well-known with job seekers and, and became uh, a preference as it is today in terms of a, a, a simpler starting point. All the jobs we had to start were on these other sites. And so these sites benefited greatly and they were uh, they were our customers, and they, um, you know, spent money on Deed to help get uh, more and more traffic. And obviously, as we grew and became bigger and bigger, it became a more complicated relationship. But we still have uh, very good relationships with thousands of job boards all over the world. They are our customers as well as direct employers. Obviously, we think that the model of giving job seekers the most choice possible is the best way to to go, and that's certainly worked well for us. 
Yeah. And, and during this time period, so from our research, you were started off as VP of product at Indeed. Yeah. So I joined uh, nine years ago back in 2010. So the company then was a, was a real company. It was profitable. It was growing successfully. It was just a lot smaller. We had about 130 employees when I joined and today we have uh, just shy of 10,000. So it's been a lot of growth in nine years. So when you first started, how many people were you in charge of? Uh, I had five people on my team. And now you're in charge of 8,000? Almost 10,000, yeah. 10,000. So yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's been a busy nine years. You have a unique position in that you have a background in product. Now, a lot of people that we've interviewed that became CEOs, a lot of times they're in operations, which I think product's kind of operations, or a lot of like maybe sales our finance backgrounds, not as many product backgrounds. I'm curious, like, what do you think uniquely puts you in position to eventually become the CEO, given your background in product? You know, Indeed is a technology company at its core. And when the company was founded, our, our, we had two co-founders, which was actually a, an interesting thing also. I'm sure you've talked to a lot of um, company leaders. And Indeed was founded by, by two guys, uh, Ronnie Kahan and Paul Forster. They were 50-50 partners. Paul was CEO, Ronnie was CTO. Um, but when they started the company, there were two decisions that they made that were really critical to the business as a whole. And I, I think this uh, this is maybe a roundabout way of answering your questions. Uh, but the, the two important decisions they made was that, number one, this is a marketplace. You have two sides. You have job seekers and employers. And they decided that the job seeker would always come first. And that is a, um, a kind of radical decision because typically in a marketplace, most people will say that whoever is your paying customer is the most important. In our case, job seekers never pay indeed, employers do. But they decided that the most important thing was the job seeker experience. If we could create an experience that was simpler, faster, more trustworthy for job seekers, then we would eventually be able to be more successful at helping more job seekers get jobs. And at the other end of every single one of the successful searches would be an employer who made a hire, and we'd be able to build a business around that. The second one was if you're building a business that has a job seeker first mentality, then how you make money has to be really in line with that. And so the other big decision that they made was unlike all of the other job sites at the time where you had to pay to post a job, getting a job onto Indeed was free. In fact, we did all the work to find all these jobs and, and bring them onto the site. Um, we launched in 2004 with a million jobs. Today, there's more than 20 million jobs on the site. Uh, but no one ever pays to get a job on. But the business model is pay for performance. And so employers, if they want more candidates than they're getting through organic search, they can what we call sponsor those jobs where they put some budget behind it. And then there's an auction that decides what's the most relevant job to show a job seeker. And employers only pay when we actually send a candidate to them. And what that pay for performance model does is it aligns us, number one, with our customers. So we're only incented to do things that provide more value to them, but it also keeps us aligned with the job seeker experience. And that if we're only making money by doing things that are helping job seekers find a job, then the only incentive that we have to grow the business is to do things that are more helpful. And that, that really allows us to stay true to this mission. So this is a long way of answering, because that's the most important thing about how the business operates. I think the fact that I was leading the product and that I was helping to make the decisions to lead us in the right direction to stay true to those principles, um, it gave me an opportunity to, I guess, see all aspects of the business and hopefully, you know, let us in 
the right direction more often than the wrong direction and, and got the opportunity to, to step into this role actually just earlier this year. So it's still a pretty new, um, new job for me. I started in April 1st in the new role. Uh, but I've been fortunate enough to, to see indeed grow and mature over the last nine years in, in ways that you know were impossible to imagine back when I started here. Are you able to share any anecdotal stories that kind of demonstrate that principle of seekers first? I've done a couple different business case studies where it's, it sounds good and then you hear it in practice and then it feels even better. It's like, yeah, of course I would make that decision because that principle is here. It's an interesting thing because the way that we talk about it internally, we say that, you know, the job seeker always comes first. And that means that it comes before our paying customers uh, and it also comes before our own convenience. So we often make decisions that upset some of our customers and that make it more difficult for people at Indeed uh, to, you know, to do their jobs because we think that the job seeker uh, trust and experience comes first. So the the first simple example was just the idea of building a search engine in the first place. Um, it's very easy to say the best way to make money would be to force people to pay us uh, to put their jobs on Indeed. That's obviously not good for job seekers, but there's a ton of other examples. So one really important one, probably the most important thing that we've done as a business is we built a, what we call a search quality team who's uh, responsibility is number one, very important. When you do a search on Indeed, what jobs do we show you first, second, third, and fourth? And so there's a whole lot of of work that goes into into what we call ranking there. But the second most important thing they do is what jobs even appear on Indeed in the first place. And so they have built out. This is really, I think, a great example. They built out what they call the Job Seeker Bill of Rights. So we have a, a Bill of Rights that that basically says, you know, job seekers have a, a right to see jobs that are uh, current and available, where the information is accurate, where there is no cost to apply to those jobs, where there's uh, no cost to get started in working in those jobs. Um, these are all things where individually we have had to go and spend a huge amount of time to ensure that the th- if we show a job to a job seeker, that it's a real job with a real employer who's looking to hire right now. Um, and people who are looking for work are often in a pretty vulnerable state, especially ones who have been out of work for some period of time and really need one. And so really doing everything that we can to protect them in every single case Again, it means that sometimes we're going to err on the side of being too cautious. So we might actually make some decisions and say, hey, this job doesn't look good. We're going to take it off. And someone might get who was spending money with us might get angry. And then we have a review process and we can take a look. And sometimes we'll say, sorry, we made a decision. We'll put that job back on. But we would rather occasionally be too conservative to protect a job seeker and maybe make a decision on that end, then be too uh, open. You know, it's, not, it's very easy to say if someone is paying you money, we'll just say yes all the time to it. A- another really important example is when we first built the ability for job seekers to create a resume on Indeed. And all of the job boards at the time had a resume database where employers could come in and search those resumes. We heard consistently. So for years, we didn't have a resume product, and but we listened to job seekers. And their biggest complaint was, I uploaded my resume to this job board or that job board. It's five years later, and I'm still getting calls from people, and I'm not looking for a job. And even worse, I'm getting calls from people trying to sell me insurance and other things like that. So <laughs> when you have a typical resume database, which is just access to all the resumes, um, once you download that resume, you've got the job seeker's home address, telephone number, email address, and there's no way to to 
have any control over your own privacy. So we created a product where the job seeker create a resume. It has all of the information about their skills and their experience and their education, but it does not have their contact information. And so an employer and a recruiter has to go through Indeed to send a message to the job seeker. That allows the job seeker to decide who and when they're going to share their contact information with. When they no longer want to be contacted, they have control and they can shut that off. And it also means that we can help police, just like we're policing the quality of the jobs, we can police who's using the site to contact job seekers. This is the number one complaint we have from employers about this product. And it's a very successful product is I just want a phone number to call a job seeker. And we have stuck for many, many years with no, the most important thing is to protect the job seeker. And as a result, we have, you know, 150 million job seekers whose resumes are on Indeed, who are actively using that and who are being very successful at getting jobs this way. Um, that's two examples. We could, we could spend an entire podcast just on this principle. It's really the most important thing in the company. This privacy product that you're talking about with the resumes, data, the resume database, you know, it clearly takes a feat of engineering, right? A lot of people were deployed to that product. Curiously, along the way, was it, did it ever get easier to make these calls to do these, these big projects that may not necessarily generate revenue immediately, but were ultimately going to be good for the business in the long tail? Did it ever get easier to make those calls? Was it hard to make those calls? Or were, were you just relying on the principles that were just laid out as foundationally? Be like, hey, we trust these principles will get us to where we, what we want. We actually have five core principles or core values in the in the company. And if I can just take a minute, I can walk you through the other ones because it, it sort of, I think it helps answer that question. So put jobs, you know, job seekers first is number one. Uh, pay for performance as our business model is number two for the reasons that I outlined, really alignment with our customers and alignment with, with job seekers. The third one is that we are data-driven. We use data to make all of our decisions. And that means at the very start, that we actually assume that we don't know what's best. As smart as the people that we hire are, as much experience and insight as we have, and as much data as we have to look at where there's opportunity, we also assume that anything that we might try, I was actually just looking at this yesterday, we have we rely very heavily on A-B tests on the site. So we run, we run tons and tons of experiments where instead of just introducing a new feature, we'll show 5% of the visitors one version and 5% uh, uh, a control, and and then we'll measure the impact very carefully. So we have more than four thousand A/B tests running on the site right now uh, around the world. So four thousand <laughs> different different experiments, and we've so we've run tens of thousands of experiments over the years, and we have really good empirical data. Seventy percent of our tests fail. So about two thirds of the time, we have really smart people building stuff that we think is really cool and amazing and is going to be transformative. And it just isn't. Um, and it's not because the team isn't smart or good. It's because nobody can, you know, see the future, basically. Nobody, yeah, you know, no one can predict so how actually, a person's going to behave. So, so one of my favorite lines, uh, you know, it, it's in business in general, but it's, it's from a, a, a filmmaker, a guy named William Goldman, who is a, a, a a novelist and a screenwriter and a playwright. So he wrote, uh, most people know him for The Princess Bride. He wrote the novel Princess Bride and the screenplay. He also wrote All the President's Men and Marathon Man. Amazing, amazing guy. Uh, but he very famously said about the movie business, nobody knows anything. And that's, uh, and I think that's not just true about the movie business. That's true about, about any business. And so we sort of approach everything and using data to guide these decisions really means having the humility to just assume that 
it might or might not be right. Let's experiment and 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 try it. Um, so that's really closely tied in, obviously, with our pay for performance model. Though also is that if you're making money only when you deliver results, you have to be able to measure them. So building a, a, a culture of of testing and measurements important. The fourth value is around innovation, and it's probably the most overused and and you know boring word in tech, uh, but. What we mean by it, a part of it is just there's no better word, really. What we mean by it, first of all, is that if you have a business model that's pay for performance, the only way that you get paid is if you're delivering value, then the only way to grow the business is to figure out how to deliver more and more value. So we, we can never stand still. We're constantly working to try to improve every aspect of our products and our business. It's also not just about the products. It's every single person in, in, in the company. So can we have a smoother video conferencing setup because we have offices all around the world where people can talk to each other? Can we do a better way of handling our support calls? So constant improvement and, and innovation really through experimentation is, is sort of you know core to how we operate. And then the last core value is around inclusion and belonging. And so that's obviously a hot topic now everywhere in business. And I think it's, uh, it's pretty empirical right now that more diverse teams make better decisions. They're more innovative. They, they build better products. They're more customer oriented. But we also care about it deeply because the world that we're in, which is the employment world, is a world where opportunity is not equally distributed. Um, There are millions and millions of people who have additional barriers to finding work based on circumstances beyond their control. And the more diverse that our team is, the more our team represents the world around us, the more open we are to seeing what some of those barriers are and to figuring out how we can use technology to, to lower those barriers and to make it easier for more people to find work. All of those things, that's, that's sort of the, the operating system for how we make decisions about the business. And if you go back to the ones around, around innovation and, and being data-driven, we approach very few things with 100% certainty. We have really strong convictions. We have a huge amount of passion. And, but one of the benefits of being a successful and profitable company of our scale is that we can just we can make a lot of big bets. Um, when we were small and we had a really small team, and then we were really limited. You know, we could make one big bet. To start, it was, we think a search engine for jobs is it. And if that bet failed, then there was going to be no company. And then, so when we did Indeed Resume, that was like the number two big bet. But now at our scale, we are able to do experiments of of all sizes and scales. We have, you know, like I said, 4,000 small experiments running, but we have, uh, we have an internal incubator that we run, which we can, we can talk about in any detail if you're interested. So we've, we've launched 130 new products and businesses over the last five years internally through this kind of internal venture capital model that we built up where, where we just systematically make a bunch of bets and a bunch of decisions. And the most important thing when you're making bets, and I think actually the most important thing when you're doing anything in business is to assume it might not work and have a plan B, right? We didn't used to be very good at that, but we've sort of built our entire operating model around not assuming that any one thing is going to be 100% perfect. So we can take more risks and be resilient in the, in the face of, ah, most of these things are probably not going to work out. But it's kind of like, you know, I, I hate sports analogies in business because they're pretty overused, but, you know, a great baseball hitter, bats 300, when I, when I look at our, our, our tests and experiments, we bat about 300. So the only thing that matters is how many times are you at the plate, right? 
Batting 300 is terrible if you're only up twice. Batting 300 is great if you're up 4,000 times. It means you're going to have a lot of opportunity to, to have impact. So that's really how we try to approach things. So we do have convictions. We do have passion. We have these kind of operating principles that help us make the difficult decisions. And we have these guardrails, which is our mission is to help people get jobs. So the only thing that we're talking about is stuff that's helping people get jobs. There's a lot of other ways that we could go with the business where we could make money that isn't helping someone get a job. And so we just say, no, that's not, that's not part of, that's not on the playing field for us. But then as long as we're on the playing field, we want to try as many things as we can. All those bets that you've made have made the outcome, the final product, something that's almost like, I would say it's like, it's not touchable to a user. Cause I'm thinking to myself back when I started, when I was looking for work in 2010, I was going to Indeed now. And I remember one of the big reasons why was because it seemed like on the other job boards, kind of like to what you were mentioned earlier in your, um, the bill of rights for the job seeker was, you know, on, on some of the other job boards, I might get hit with like a, you know, like a, like a MLM's kind of deal, right? I might get hit with one of those, but then indeed didn't feel that way. And because, so it's like, it's not over overtly in my face, like indeed it's not advertising to me like, Oh, we do X, Y, and Z to protect you. But like over time, I guess as a job seeker, you just kind of feel it. You know what I mean? And then that becomes your de facto trusted source. Yeah, that we should use you in our marketing. Um, but yeah, that's, oh. that's, that's, the, <laughs> that, that's the, that's the best um, kind of experience is that when you don't notice that the stuff is there. I mean, so many people at Indeed and at every company are doing work where, you know, you only notice if if they mess up. Uh, but when it comes to security, when it comes to privacy, when it comes to to keeping, you know, uh, irrelevant and bad stuff off of the site, hopefully nobody is paying attention to that because they just know they can come and they can find things that are going to be useful and relevant and uh, and and increasingly what we're really focused on now is is not just are the jobs good jobs and they're a real employer on the other side. But if you apply, are you going to hear back? So, so over the last nine years I've been here, the, the, the number one thing that we hear from job seekers over and over again is indeed is amazing. There's all these opportunities there, but I apply to jobs and I don't hear back from employers. So we, we call this the black hole problem. This has been the number one problem that sort of has plagued job applications since they came online. And this is a sort of a good, I think, articulation of, of how our strategy has played out over time, which is when I started nine years ago, we would we would read these um, complaints from job seekers, and our reaction was, oh, well, job seekers just don't understand. That's really the employer's problem. That's not, you know, all we are is a search engine. You come and you search and you click and you leave, and then we're not responsible for what happens there. But then year after year after year, people keep saying, this is the most difficult thing for me in my job search process is I don't know where I stand. I'm not hearing back from anyone. And, and so when we it, the really nice thing is we can just go back to our mission. Our mission is that we help people get jobs. Our mission is not to help people click on jobs. And so if our mission says that what matters is did someone get hired, then anything that stands in the way of that, that is our problem. This black hole problem, this is actually, you know, one of the, we have, we have a, a small handful of top objectives for the entire company. Um, and this is like the number one objective from a product perspective is to, is to reduce the black hole. And so there's a whole bunch of things now because we have, you know, millions of employers who are actively managing all of their hiring on Indeed, we can create incentives for them 
to you know get better placement if they're actually more responsive to to job seekers we can also let job seekers know how responsive an employer is we can give nudges we so we can do a whole lot to just improve that entire process and so everything that we're trying to do as a business is it's almost like the it's just the the foundation that we happen to have this really successful search engine the rest of it is how do we how do we follow the rest of those steps when you apply to the job, when you hear back from the employer, do you get an interview? Do you get an offer? And do you get hired? That's really sort of our obsession and what we're focused on. I want to ask you about that because on the performance side, so like you, you mentioned before that the, like the, the employers, they're not as important as the seekers, but they're still obviously very important to your business. How, did, how, how about building trust with them? Because if I'm paying you, if I'm paying Indeed every single time you send me an applicant, what measures do you take to make sure my applicants are good? Yeah. So interestingly, our, <laughs> our number one objective is around the black hole. Our number two objective in the company is around application quality. Um, and because that is something that, again, once you make it really easy for people to find and apply to jobs, and we spent a lot of time, it used to be really hard to apply to a job online. And then especially when, you know, when I started Indeed, about 5% of all of our job seeker visits were from a mobile device. Today, it's north of 70%. And so if it was hard to apply to a job on a, on a desktop browser, it was really hard to apply from your mobile phone. And so creating Indeed resume, making it really easy for people to use that resume to apply to a job, reducing the number of steps in that apply process. So we spent a lot of time just making it easier and easier. Then once we did that, we suddenly realized now we were sending a whole lot of applies to people. And so the next problem, we just, you know, uh, our CTO, uh, Andrew Hudson, he likes to, to say that in, in any efficient system, your bottleneck should be moving around. So you should have a problem and then you should basically work on and fix that problem. And then it's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, then something else becomes the problem. If you have, <laughs> if you have the same problem for, for 15 years, then, then you're doing something wrong. And so it used to be really hard to apply to jobs. We made it easy. And then we created a new problem, which is, okay, now there's too many applications. How do we help create uh, the best one? So this is where the fact that we have 250 million job seekers and millions of employers interacting. So it's not just the, the searching. We have millions of employers who are looking at those applications, who are responding to candidates, who are interviewing them, who are making offers. So we actually have now a, a tremendous amount of insight about what makes a good fit from uh, a job seeker and a job. And we're also, we're very careful that we, we talk about this as an application quality problem, not an applicant quality. So the problem is not like bad job seekers. It's just, we've made a bad match here. We've introduced you to the wrong job. So there's a huge number of things that we're doing. So we've run, uh, of those 4,000 experiments, we have dozens right now we're running where when a job seeker looks at a job, we can use all of the information that we have from their resume. They also likely have applied to other jobs in the past. And so we have questions that we that are asked as part of the, inter, the application process that they've answered or assessments that they've taken. And we can show them, hey, here's the requirements for this job. And it looks like you're missing a couple of them. Are you, do you want to update your resume? Cause maybe it's missing that, or maybe we could suggest these other jobs over here for you. So we're trying to help job seekers understand that it's, it's certainly not a good use of their time or the employer's time for them to apply to a job that's the wrong one, but then we have to point them in the right direction, obviously. And so there's a, a another set of work that we're, we've been doing for years and years, which is just taking all that information and making our search results more relevant. And so it's, you know, Nine years ago, if you did a search for marketing jobs in Austin, Texas, everyone who did that search would see exactly the same results. Today, we have 
much more sophistication around knowing about what other jobs you've seen in the past, what you're most likely to be interested in, and what the employer is looking for. So we can help tailor the results where people are seeing things that are not just ones that they're going to be most interested in, but ones that they're more likely to be qualified for. Because ultimately, that's why someone comes to Indeed. They're, they want to get hired. And it's not just to sort of you know, look at anything that they might possibly see. They want to get it as quickly as possible to something where, where an employer is going to express interest and they can have a conversation with a human being that will lead to them getting a job. No, I love it. And when, when I hear you talk, by the way, the way you talk about Indeed, the products and services, you can, I feel like I can tell that you're a product-centric guy, right? So I, I want to ask you some questions like, so how, you're the CEO of a 10,000 person multinational company. Where do you split your time? Cut up a day for me. Where where are you focused on? Yeah, that's so. That's a really great question. Um, <laughs> I've I've spent some time recently. Uh, I just hired a new chief of staff, and the conversation that we had when when she came on board was, my primary goal is I want to spend my time where it adds the most value, and what that means is where are the areas where me getting involved will help something move along more effectively than it would otherwise. The most important part of that is where am I sticking my nose in things where it's counterproductive. And so a big part of this is actually being self-aware of the fact that I'm not always helpful. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm super opinionated. Uh, I have a lot of ideas about a lot of things. And to be frank, it, it's, it's a weird thing to acknowledge because this is not sort of who I am, but I think it's just attached to the title. I make some people nervous. And so, you know, if I come in and I'm looking over someone's shoulder, that might not be the best environment for them to be making decisions and doing their work. So it's actually a big part of this is trying to figure out where should I stop spending my time. And so where I'm spending my time, actually, most of it right now is with, um, we have uh, a set of GMs over really kind of our different segments of users and customers. One group that's just focused on the job seeker, one group that's focused on small and medium businesses, one on enterprise businesses, one on our internal systems, and then one on really the kind of new recruiting solutions that we're building on top of Indeed. And so I spend my time with those groups where it is most helpful and useful. But really the, the kind of operating philosophy here, a lot of it has to do with autonomy and ownership. So we spend a lot of time arguing about and agreeing on how are we going to measure success and then really trying to stay out of the details. Because at when I had five product managers, I knew everything that everyone was doing. We sat in a room together every single day. We would review every single product. I knew every single test that was going out, every single feature, every single thing that didn't work or was working. I could recite all the numbers for everything. Um, as you get bigger and bigger, that command and control thing does not work at all. It does not scale. And so for us, it's really creating an environment where people can have ownership uh, of they agree to an outcome that they're trying to produce. And a lot of this you know, comes around from those product teams is what's the impact we're trying to have on the black hole? Or the, what's the impact we're trying to have on application quality? We have multiple different ways we can measure that. And then we try to act more like a board where they can come to us and say, here's what we're doing. Here's where we're seeing success. Uh, we need some help here. So can I help make some connections somewhere, or we have a new idea, we'd like, we'd like you to invest and give us some more money so we can go and, and try to build something new. But I think the most important thing that any leader does is sort of say, where are we going and how are we going to measure that? And then give people the opportunity to, to lead the way there. And, and, and really then 
articulating as frequently and as as clearly as possible what's the mission and what are the values because that's how people are going to make decisions. You can't you can't make decisions for 10,000 people, but if you give them a framework that helps them make the decisions, then you can get a whole lot more done. And then it's actually a much more fun place to work for everyone else, right? It's, you know, people, you hire smart people and then tell them exactly what to do. Um, and they get pretty frustrated quickly and they want to go work somewhere else. And so, you know, what made Indeed successful to start is the stuff that we really try to keep true today. And, and you know, at, at, its, at its core, it's number one, it's the mission. For every company, it's important to have at least clarity around what it is that you're doing. In our case, the mission is also something that for everyone that's here is deeply meaningful personally. You know, when it, when it comes to what a job means to someone, it is obviously, you know, economic opportunity. It's, it's, it's paying the bills. It's, it's, you know, putting your kids through school. Uh, but it's, it's also a, a basic source of pride and dignity and, and, and it is so powerful, especially when we get to connect with people on the outside who, you know, we have, you have this t-shirt that we give every single employee and it just says in big 60 point Helvetica bold font, I help people get jobs. And it's, it's on the business cards and it's on the walls and it's, you know, it's, it's a constant reminder, but you wear the shirt outside and, and someone comes up to you inevitably and says, oh, you work for Indeed. I love you guys. I found my job on Indeed. I found my last two jobs on Indeed. My daughter found her job on Indeed. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that like, I like to say, that's what gets us up in the morning. That's what keeps us up at night. And so having something like that as, as the sort of guiding principle, um, has been has been sort of profoundly uh, you know defining of of the company as a whole. Uh, there's no doubt about it, right? You're doing something that I would say I would say what 99.99 percent of adults have to have, right? <laughs> Very few people can go without no, it's, one. <laughs> it's, it's it's really important if you have one, yeah. and it's it's really important if you if you don't have one, and if you're having trouble right. getting one. And so that 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 really keeps everyone. Uh, I think focused and oriented towards towards why it's important to do what we do. So one of the things I also wanted, or a couple of things I want to talk about with you, is your background. Your path is, I would say, it's 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 interesting, right? You started off non non linear. Yeah, I've got two nuggets of facts about you. That one is awesome. I love it. Or both are awesome, right? So you were an aspiring rock star. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, failed rock star. Sure. Yeah. Aspiring. <laughs> aspiring. aspiring. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you can still want to get there. Well, actually, there's three things, right? You were an aspiring rock star. You also have a degree in architecture. So we know you love the arts, right? You're also a super helpful person because you were a special ed teacher. Uh, that was your first job or one of your first earlier jobs. Tell me a little about those, those desires and your, that first job. What does that say about you? And how do you think that molded who you were and that love of art and compassion? How does that play for you now where you are today? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think everyone's experiences shape them. So clearly I would be a different person if I hadn't followed the path that I have. I'm really bad at answering the question of, you know, what career advice do you have for people? Because I did not, I did not have a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. I was really driven by doing things that excited me and that I was passionate about. I actually started out, so I was a super geeky math and science kid growing up. I got an Apple II in 1979 and, and you know, was, was all into computers, but I'm an I'm 52. If you go back, there was not there was not a whole lot of resources available to the average kid, other than you know getting an Apple and I learned basic and you could program. And after that, but my my school had no, uh, you know, no one. There was no such thing as computer science in in uh, you know 
middle school or, or high school education. We had no computer lab. We didn't have anything. So when I went to school, I was I, I was always, um, and I'd say like all of my interests have always been kind of at this intersection of of math and and art. So architecture is is an art form, but it's it's a practical art form. So you're you're building something that that has to be you know beautiful and attractive, but it also has to be usable. And there's these engineer like I studied architecture as an undergrad, and I had to take a bunch of engineering classes because you have to know, you know how how things don't fall over <laughs> if you're going to build them properly. And so there's something about that. My favorite kind of art is all things that are created with some set of constraints. And so like physical engineering is a constraint. So you you make and and I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Frank Lloyd Wright. He was very famous for saying form follows function. And there's something about that that I always love. That beautiful design is is something that actually works really well. And uh, so I studied I studied architecture. I also have uh, have had a, a you know career of of you know the first decade or so was finding out what I'm not good at. So I learned pretty early on in my studio classes that I had no talent at all for architecture. <laughs> I loved it and I, I I felt like I had a pretty good eye and I could understand the, the the theory behind it and the beauty and the simplicity of it, but I was terrible. And so but before I graduated it was really clear that I wasn't going to become an architect. Was that was that humbling or did you just kind of roll with it? It, it was humbling, but it was also, you know, I looked at, there was this one guy in, uh, in my freshman studio class named Danny Castor, who went on to be a, and is a very successful and important architect. He's an amazing, he, he was clearly the best guy in, in the studio. And uh, he had the roughest time the, the professors, you know, tore him apart all the time. So I looked at it and it was like, wow, even if you're really good, this is a really difficult, <laughs> difficult field. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've always been, and and this is uh, you know getting more personal. But I sort of have always been the guy who wants to be the best at something, and then figured out pretty early on that I'm not. You know, I, I was I was not the certainly I was not even a, a competent architect. Um, I was not the best musician in the world. There are people out there who were far more talented than me who who struggled to to make a living at it. Um, and you know, when I started studying computer science in grad school, and we can we can go into any of that um, in any level of detail. I fell in love with it immediately, and it was you know as soon as I landed on that, it was it was really clear this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. And I was a really good software engineer because I'm incredibly conscious and detail oriented and dogged, and I would not let anything not work. But I was surrounded by people who could just look at something and in 30 seconds figure out, oh, this is actually the easy way to to do it. And so somewhere along the way, I sort of figured out that you know my superpower was not ever going to be to be the best creator of anything. But one of the things that I happen to do really well is I could recognize what was good and what wasn't as good and that I was able to help other people get better at what they were doing. And it was okay for me to not take all the glory, let them to, to, to do the work. Because it turns out that I can actually get more stuff done by having a bunch of people go and do something really well than me trying to do it myself. And so... To answer your question, yes, it was humbling, but actually I, I think humility is is like probably the greatest asset that anyone can develop. And obviously, you know, saying that you're humble suggests that you're not. So what I would say is that I, I, I try to work on that a lot. I try to I try to be aware of it and I try to be comfortable um, with, the you know, all of the acts of the not knowing and, and, you know, not having to be the one that gets the stuff done and 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 recognizing what are the things that you can do well. And, and especially if that means that um being helpful to other people 
is something that that you can do well, then then you can actually get a lot done. So, so the the teaching thing that's where I started. Actually, my first job right out of grad school was uh, working at an adolescent psychiatric hospital on the chemical dependency unit. So I worked with young addicts and alcoholics, and I had a real passion for working with adolescents. And then I'd met my wife in college, and she'd moved to this small town in Vermont. So I I quit that job mostly just to move to be with her. So I moved to this small town in Vermont with three thousand people, um, and ended up. Uh, I wanted to get another job in a similar field, but I ended up finding a job substitute teaching and it was doing special education and then ended up getting hired full time. And and so I got to spend you know my first two years out of school working with adolescents who had, um, in 100% of the cases, had been dealt a, a pretty um, difficult deck. And, um, you know, it's really, I think, profoundly eye-opening for anyone who who didn't have the same kind of struggles to to spend a lot of time uh, working with people and seeing how how hard it is when when your circumstances are different to do things that seem really simple and easy for for lots of people and so um, that that really kind of stirred in me uh, a passion to to want to to want to do things to be useful and helpful to people, especially people who um, who had a tougher time. And so, you know, fast forward many, many years, that's the kind of stuff that I, I tried to bring into my work. And then when I when I ended up with my startup before B-Side failing and uh, before Indeed failing and, and looking for the next opportunity and, and met the, the founders of Indeed and saw what they were doing, it was just sort of an immediate, you know, love at first sight kind of situation because all of the stuff that I had had been thinking about and wanting to do then coming together in a business where really the whole mission is around helping people. And and it's not, you know, it looks good on a t-shirt and on the walls, but it really is what we live and breathe every day. And we have an impact on on so many millions of people that, um, yeah, so all of those things really, really shaped me. And, um, and it was not a linear path. In each case, the sort of next thing was sort of the next obvious thing that cropped up in front of me. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I went from teaching to my wife. I followed my wife for the first, you know, many years. Basically, she got a she went to grad school in Los Angeles, and I'm a musician. I have passion for music, and so decided to dive in full time. I I studied and and played in five bands and was practicing six hours a day. And you know, again, was was not good enough to 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 make it, but I I, I loved it. And I wouldn't. And and the best thing about it is that I have no regrets. Because otherwise, I'd be sitting around now saying, "Oh, what if I, you know, what if I had tried that thing instead?" The answer is, I tried it and it, it didn't work. I will say that I've uh, we've put there's a lot of musicians here in Austin, and uh, we have probably 80 really solid musicians in in the Indeed Austin office. And so every year for the holiday party, we put together a bunch of bands, and uh, so I, I still get to play now, um, nice. but, but with Indeed nice. people. So we have our <laughs> we have our holiday party next Friday, and I'm in I'm in one of the four bands, so I'll get to I'll get to play there. There you go. That's it. What, so what is your preferred style of music to play now? So, uh, so I play drums. The, the different bands play different stuff. The, the bands uh, that I've played with over the years here at Indeed, it's a party. I think people want to dance at a party. So we're, we're mostly like 70s funk and soul kind of stuff with some more modern stuff. We're doing some Lizzo and some Janelle Monet and then some older stuff, some Isley Brothers and things like that. So people, people want to dance at a party. Will the Indeed employees see you dressed up like Jack Ma doing karaoke? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> He's no, wearing this crazy costume. Yeah, nobody wants to hear me sing. I'll, I'll start with that. <laughs> and uh, I will probably have a Santa hat, but I don't know if I'm going to go the, with the full outfit outfit. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you, you don't like being asked career advice, but how about this? I think you'd be, give good advice on this. How about solving problems? 
What's a good, what's your problem solving advice? Yeah. Well, in terms of sort of from the business side here, we, we always try to look at things from, you know, if there's something that we want to do, we're, we try to be really clear from the start. What, what is the goal and how are we going to measure it? Um, I think that there's a lot of things and it's, it's a really easy trap to be so, you know, sure or confident in something. And, and look, this is somewhat counterintuitive advice because most entrepreneurs or people will say like, you have to believe in your vision and everyone else is wrong. And, you know, and, and, and that's, there's a lot of examples of that being true. You know, for me, I think this, this nobody knows anything approach is, is really actually freeing. And so I sort of described this when I had this startup before Indeed, and, and it was a long journey up and then down and, and ultimately did, did not succeed. And I started talking to people about it that, you know, my belief is that there's two patron saints of entrepreneurs, and it's uh, Don Quixote and Mr. Spock. And you sort of need a little bit of both. So a, a successful entrepreneur has to, at least six days a week, be Don Quixote. You have to actually convince yourself that the world is wrong and you're right. Otherwise, no one would do anything interesting, right? So you have to have passion and belief that crazy, unimaginable things are, you know, can come to pass. Uh, but then at least once a week, you have to take off the, the, the Don Quixote hat and you have to put on the, the Mr. Spock ears and you have to look just coldly and rationally and without, you know, any emotion at the numbers. And is this working or isn't this working? And then you have to take that off and, and, and go back. And, and, and there's a lot of businesses that fail because they're all one or the other. If you're all Mr. Spock, you're never going to do anything interesting. And if you're all Don Quixote, you're going straight off the edge of a cliff. So how to make decisions. I think it's important to sort of like think crazy and then put a timer on. Right. I mean, so a lot of what we do. So I mentioned briefly, we have this internal incubator. The way it works is we have open pitches once a quarter where anyone in the company can come and pitch to the senior leadership their ideas for the next new business at Indeed. We pick people who we think have, you know, the possibility of leading a team and an idea that we think is a sound one. And then we give them a budget. So it's, it's like an early stage venture capital firm. So they, and we actually go through rounds. There's, there's seed, angel, Series A, Series B, Series C. And so like the, the first round, you get $160,000 in three months. The most important part of that, and we, we sort of stumbled into this after trying a couple of different models, is, is just like a, it's a fixed amount of time. Because that's actually how a startup works, right? You get a fixed amount of money and, you, and that buys you some time. And then the default is at the end of that time, you run out of budget, you run out of money, and we're shutting this thing down. If they've done something along the way that they think is useful or interesting, then they can come back and pitch for more funding. So they say, here's what we did over the last three months. Here's what we learned. Wasn't exactly what we thought, but we actually found this new cool thing here. We would like now $300,000 and six months of funding. And we either say yes or no, but it creates a, a sort of set of decision points where very rationally and calmly we can say, you know what, this isn't moving along at the clip that we'd like, or we haven't learned enough. And that allows us to then say yes to so many more things. Because in, in, in the past, we used to be terrible. And, and I think mo you, almost any company leader you talk to probably say, oh, we're really bad at, at shutting things down. We, we, we used to be really bad at shutting things down. And, and it's hard once something is running. But if you start and say, guess what? You got three months, go. First of all, there's a huge amount of urgency to try to prove something quickly, which is why startups often succeed when big companies fail at trying to do new things. Because you have the luxury of being profitable and having you know, nice offices to work out of and free lunch and things like that. Um, it's good to be sort of hungry and, and have urgency. 
but it also allows us to then look and say, you know what, this isn't working. And really, there's there's 50 other ideas that people are pitching. We'd rather redeploy these resources on on something new. So I think that you know making decisions is you know a, an important part of it. Is how are you going to measure and decide that in advance? So don't don't figure out later. Oh, the way we're going to measure success is we got 150 of these. Um, say, hey, if if we can't get to you know, 500 of these or a thousand of these within three months, then we're not on a path. And then, and then just be, you know, rational and Spock-like when you make that decision. No, that is great. And how long has that program been around? So it's uh, in one form or another for the last five years, we started out initially. Um, and so there's two parts of it. There's the open pitching, which is now about two and a half years old, but we started originally for our, as our new college grad uh, boot camp, And so that's been going on for, for now over five years. It's called Indeed University. And so we bring in, you know, we got a hundred new college grads that come over from all over the world. We fly them into Austin for 12 weeks. And they spend one week sort of learning the ropes. Um, and then on week two, they pitch new business ideas. They form teams. Um, and then they spend 10 weeks building and launching. They get a they get a real bud. They get a $25,000 marketing budget. They do all the work themselves. And they are the engineers, but they're also the designers, the product managers, the growth marketers, customer uh, support. And that program has been amazingly successful. And again, most of those things don't end up being products for Indeed, but more than twenty of them have over the years. Uh, but twenty, it's, yeah. But it's yeah, but it's that's pretty damn good. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. But it's but it's really the experience of so the the whole goal of that one. You go back to those core values of ours. The whole purpose of Indeed University is to teach data driven decision making. And we could do it by giving lectures and doing case studies, but it's way more impactful to say, go and build a business. And, and then I spend pretty much most of my Fridays over the summer with the Indeed University teams. I meet with every single team back to back. They have seven minutes each to, to, to meet uh, for a weekly check-in. And it's basically three questions. It's what data did you collect last week? What decisions did you make because of that? And what are you doing next week? And the whole concept is I, and I say to them at the beginning, I will, I have a lot of opinions. I'll share my opinions. I'll give you my advice, but you're, you're the CEO of this product here. If you listen to me and you fail, it's your fault. Like you have to own your own decisions. So, so take what everyone says, you know, with a grain of salt and then own your own decisions. And then they learn so much about the value of, of testing and measuring through doing that. And especially because most of them run into trouble and don't, because most ideas, you know, are not quite right. Getting back to that, that sort of first concept there. And then the ones that do succeed, you know, it's actually, it's amazing because so the, the first year, one of the most successful Indeed U projects we've ever had was the first year was a, a group that uh, had this idea that there are millions of jobs that are not online in the form of a help wanted sign in a window. And we should find a way to help people find those jobs. And so they, uh, they, they built an app that essentially, and because they only had 10 weeks to do this, they sort of hacked one side of it. They got on their bikes and rode all over Austin in the August heat, you know, hundred degrees <laughs> and took pictures of, you know, a couple thousand help wanted signs. And they built a little app where job seekers could see all those locations on a map and they could go and, uh, basically either get directions or call directly. And what we found was that job seekers love this. The engagement was like triple the engagement of those same types of jobs if it was a normal job listing on Indeed. So then we gave them you know, more budget and they moved out to San Francisco, which is where the, the team was from. And they built an app. It's called Job Spotter. You can download it in the, in the app store today. Um, and with the Job Spotter app, you can take a picture of a help wanted sign anywhere and with one tap, post that job to Indeed. And then we have a moderation process to make sure that they're real jobs. Uh, but those jobs go on Indeed 
uh, JobSpot or Jobs Today are the, the number two most popular source of jobs in the entire world. Um, wow. The number one is the jobs that are posted directly to Indeed, and the number three and four are the two biggest job boards in Japan. So that's how big it is. We've had 500,000 uh, people over the last four years post over 5 million jobs to Indeed that were never there before. And the cool thing about that, just in terms of the learning for us, you know, number one was getting jobs online. That's the first thing that we ever did 15 years ago. And yeah. here we had three 22-year-olds who had never worked in the field before and had never certainly worked in Indeed before come up with the biggest innovation to finding uh, new sources of jobs that we'd seen anywhere. So, so clearly, even at the, the, the start of the business, we're never done with that work. There's always more innovation. But the second most important lesson was when they pitched it, you know, I, I told them it totally wouldn't work that we had a bunch of really smart people with MBAs. <laughs> this was not a new idea. We've looked at this before. We built models. You should go talk to Sasha over here. It definitely won't work. And and the whole way that Indeed you was set up is they, they didn't need my approval or anyone else's approval. The approval required for funding for Indeed University is just to convince three other people to spend the summer working with you. So they said, thank you for sharing. We're going to do it anyway. And they they were unbelievably successful. So getting back to the whole, like nobody knows anything, it's my favorite story to tell because the coolest thing that we did in years was something that if they had asked me, I would have said no. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm glad I didn't. There you go. And that's the value of being data driven, right? Exactly. And the idea that you're already okay with, we're going to take experiments, 70% are going to fail. I think it's this one, but if you have data to prove otherwise, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Chris, I know your day is busy. I appreciate your time. Did you have fun today? This was fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this. And I love, obviously, we're a mission-driven company. So uh, being part of the, the Mission uh, Daily Podcast is an exciting opportunity. And thanks for asking me. Awesome. Yeah, we love sharing stories like this. And uh, thank you for joining us. All right. Take care. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.